0: Hello and welcome to the first Nevermind the Bar Chart episode of the Joe Swinson era with myself, Mark Pack, and my co-host... Stephen Tall. So, since we last recorded, uh, two front-runner favourites have won their leadership <laughs> election, so not a lot to discuss, I, probably. Well,
1: it's Joe Swinson. I can't think of anything else that's happened if, uh, that's momentous,
0: can you? I'm going to have to break it to you, aren't oh. I, Stephen? Um, but the, the perhaps surprising difference... Well, there are many differences between the Conservatives <laughs> and the Liberal Democrats, but one of the differences is that in the Conservative Party, traditionally the front runner often doesn't win, mm-hmm. although this time Boris Johnson did. Uh, in the Liberal Democrats, we're uh, a little bit more by the form book in that the front runner almost always wins, but by a smaller margin than yep. everyone expected. Uh, this time, that was almost what happened, except I think it's probably fair to say Joe's 63% was probably a higher yeah. share of vote than most people yeah. were expecting. We remember
1: my gut... Uh, instinct from last time was fifty-five, forty-five, mm. uh, and that was based on simply that all Lib Dem leadership elections I've taken part mm. in seem to have ended up around that number mm. once other candidates have been excluded. So uh, I think, from Joe Swinson's point of view, it's uh, it's not a Boris kind of landslide, but it was a pretty clear, resounding win.
0: Boris Johnson, please. I feel we should we should adopt. I think that uh, should never, ma- never mind uh, the champagne. Um, podcast rules of that if you ever refer to Boris Johnson just as Boris you have to make a forfeit of making a political prediction yeah and I know the New Statesman has also
1: had this swear box but I I just feel like uh, influential as this podcast is we're not going to turn around that narrative now he is (laughs) is defined as Boris because you can't think of another person called Boris in the same way that Maggie uh, uh, you know Paddy uh, you know we don't tend Maggie to Maggie Philbin uh, we don't tend once to once again uh, once again outrageous, outrageous Paddy McGuinness outrageous uh, bias
0: against scientists just I airbrushing think, them out I
1: think there are just some politicians who get to a level of fame and whose first name is distinctive enough that it is just natural to call them by that first name so I think there are bigger battles to be fought in the years ahead should we move on then <laughs> okay um, so
0: Joe won quite comfortably 63% of the vote yep. a very high turnout actually 72% which well, you is say the joint you highest say turnout that. so
1: High by Liberal Democrat standards, uh, yep. because it's ranged from, what, 56% in the Tim Farron-Norman-Lamb mm-hmm. contest to, as you say, 72%, mm. which was, I think, the joint
0: highest? Joint highest. Was and it, and the, because the party's membership which was the is other at a one, record it, uh, high, um, I'm just gliding past that <laughs> You can't remember. Because <laughs> the Liberal <laughs> Democrat membership is at a record high, uh, it's the most number of members who have ever, ever yeah, voted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the 72% was not, was the, ooh, was it the Kennedy... I think it might have been the Ming, uh, or oh, well, the leadership first election. Ming leadership election. Actually, I think I think you're right because it was that certainly the first Ming leadership election. Although it was a one where sort of almost everyone expected the Ming would win, and indeed he did, albeit by a slightly smaller margin than people were expecting. Um, it's perhaps surprising that that one had quite a healthier turnout as yeah. it did. But the, one, the reason I questioned is it high? Obviously,
1: in the uh, Dem terms, it is. As you said, it's the joint highest. Higher than but the general election. But then, at if the you uh, look at the other leadership contest, um, won by um, the Boris mm. who must not be named, uh, you can name that them, just was use a um, surname. <laughs> that was eighty-seven point four percent. Uh, turnout, so significantly higher. And that is
0: exceptionally high compared to turnout in other it is, but I looked, internal I party contests it of all sorts. I
1: did look it up, and so the previous two Conservative Party membership mm. contests were 78 and 79% mm. in 2001 and 2005, respectively. Mm. So even when they weren't choosing a Prime mm. Minister, accepting that this uh, <coughs> Conservative Party leadership yep. contest was exceptional mm. because how often do you actually get to vote for the person who will become Prime Minister? This is the first time. Any, t- any ordinary member of the public has had that chance to have a direct influence uh, over events in that way. So that is exceptional. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Conservative Party leadership contests generate um, higher turnout. Why is that?
0: Well, one possibility is that those turnout figures are a little bit misleading, because the Conservatives have this sort of hybrid, local, central membership system, which, as indeed we saw again this time, produces quite a lot of problems with getting fully accurate records as to who their members are at any point mm-hmm. in time and therefore sending the ballot papers out. And hence the stories about people receiving more than one ballot paper and so on. Um, so one possibility is actually the Tory party, because the Tory Party a system for defining their electorate is not very good, the people who are least engaged with the party and therefore least likely to vote in leadership election are more likely to drop off the electorate and therefore never get sent a ballot paper and hence... Okay. they don 't vote as they wouldn 't have if they had been sent the ballot paper, but therefore the turnout percentage figure looks higher than it would otherwise. I think generally, if you look at things like whether it 's trade union elections or you know, NGOs that have internal contests or indeed labor party leader, you know, leadership elections you know, being being over seventy percent i would I would count as a pretty good yeah. as a pretty good number i mean it is one of the oddities of humanity in general you know it, it wouldn 't be unreasonable for a visiting alien to think but but you pay up your money to be a member of this organisation, and in the most important decision, probably that you as an individual can make about that organisation, where all you have to do is something very simple in terms of it's a very simple form or a very simple bit of online voting. You decide not to do it. Why on earth would anyone? Yeah. Surely turnout should be yeah. the ninety nine percent margin. But for whatever reason, that's just not how humanity is. Yeah,
1: and I, I guess in this election as well, there was the issue uh, as to how much of a big difference there was between the two candidates as well. And that's Mm. something we touched on in our uh, previous podcast that, uh, as you had pointed out in a blog, that the more time they spent together and the more Hustings events as they went around the country, Mm. the more they started to sound quite similar
0: Mm. uh, to each other. And even when asked, um, and unfortunately because we don't know the names of who put in the different questions, I don't know who to credit for this, but I thought it was a really good question that somebody asked at the Hustings at Gatwick Airport... Um, or rather one should say a hotel on the side of Gatwick Airport we were all lined up on the runway but uh, uh, the hustings at Gatwick where somebody said it was a version of in the end I have to choose between the two of you how are you different from the other one and both of them, most of their answer was about how similar they were and wasn't it great that they were really similar which sort of gets you the easy applause but fundamentally you do have to give people a reason to vote for you and Mm. I think... Yeah, particularly now that we know the result, I am maybe slightly less puzzled by Joe Swinson's strategy because I think she started off being ahead and the front runner and in the lead and therefore playing a slightly cautious game sort of makes sense. You know, if you look at, for example, in twenty seventeen, the sort of leadership contest that wasn't quite because only Vince Cable put his name forward, the, the survey I did at the time, the sort of the Lib Dem Newswire survey, where I just gave people open ended opportunity to pick any MP, who might they want to be as leader, Um, Joe Swinson was massively popular and streets ahead of Ed Davey, and in fact Ed Davey barely featured in people's picks, so I think it's hugely to Ed's credit that actually I think he has massively increased his popularity in the party, but when it came to the strategy, I can sort of get Joe having a play it safe, the answer to how am I different is I'm not very different, therefore if you're ahead you stay ahead. I, I i still I never quite understood what what the route was by which ed ed's messaging and it was was intended to get him from being way behind to being ahead the, yeah i mean the, the clear finding from your party members survey. Not that would be the one survey. that uh, gave Jo Swinson uh, 60% of the vote. And remind me, what did she actually get in this contest? Uh,
1: she got uh, 63 and a bit percent. So you were outside the margin of error, I think. Yeah, shocking, um, shocking. Blind so, luck. It <laughs> served me so, well. Two, um, two leadership elections in a uh, row. Yes, well done, Mark. You got it right. Um, so my <laughs> question, so the thing that came out yeah. of the survey before you totally distract me was uh, that the main attribute that party members Mm. were looking for was a clear communicator, someone with Mm. some media savvy who would be able to get the party message Mm. across, who would get profile, Mm. uh, whether on TV Mm. or radio or online print, whatever it might be, that they would be out there and able to uh, make sure that the message was heard loud and clear. And I guess Joe Swinson... um, Has that, I mean, she has the advantage that she was uh, not only the only female candidate in this uh, leadership race, she is now the only uh, female leader of a UK wide, sole leader of a UK wide party. I'm being very careful there to distinguish the Green Party, <laughs> That's which an has an impressively co-
0: convoluted definition. To Green her. Party does, of course, She's have the a only female co-leader. leader
1: of a political party with two yep. words in its name. Wonderful exactly. <laughs> change, <which ends with, laughs> and rhymes with "emocrats." Yes. Uh, so, uh, she, but in terms of the four mm. uh, leading parties at the moment in current polling, you will have the range of uh, Boris uh, Johnson, if you insist, Boris Johnson, and Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn, thank you, <laughs> and Nigel. Farage or Farage. Uh, so you've got that kind mm. of clear uh, distinction, which yeah. I guess helps just in terms of the optics of it, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, that here is a young female leader.
0: But I and, guess and actually the the front page coverage of her victory across yeah. the different newspapers yeah. was very striking. You know, the, it was uh, a, yeah, well done to the the different press photographers who, who, who got the different snaps of Jo Swinson. But but one thing I think is absolutely the case is that they, it did look like a fresher and more interesting story yeah. than had it been someone else who had looked like, say, you or me, as in another middle-aged yeah, yeah. sort of white man, that there was a certain interest there that probably will will have caught a little bit the public's eye in a way that somebody who looks more traditionally like a politician mm-hmm. uh, has been in Britain uh, probably wouldn't have.
1: But I, I, I guess where I only very slightly disagree with you in terms of, I mean, she did run as um, sort of the the presumptive uh, leader, I don't mean in an arrogant way, just as mm. in someone who was uh, looking to hit the ground running and would mm. um, take to it like a duck to water. But that said, in terms of who ran the most uh, savvy campaign uh, and who injected some humour, for example, mm. in social media feeds, mm. so when she launched her campaign, there was this um, short video where uh, Christine Jardine fired a starter's gun and uh, Joe Swinson started running and mm. with, the, with the famous Twitter hashtag, She's Running, Uh, So there was was an attempt to try and inject some kind of humour and personality Hmm. into uh, her social media uh, campaigns in particular in a way that I don't think Ed, until he started dancing uh, in another um, famous tweet, Uh, at least in Lib Dem circles, (laughs) I don't think, um, tried to do it in quite the same way. Hmm. So even if the messages were quite similar, Hmm. you know, Hmm. anti-Brexit, pro-environment, uh, pro-immigration hmm. uh, all those kinds of things that you kind of expect and would you really expect there to be a difference between the candidates when it came to trying to ha- how they were trying to get that message across I think uh, Joe probably had the better game. Yeah I think
0: um, if you look at the and that's Joe Swinson you didn't correct me there did you? <laughs> well it, it, it's only Boris Johnson we <laughs> have to guard <laughs> against populist extremism from and um, I think if you look at their performance on Facebook Uh, You know, Joe Swinson started with a larger Facebook audience than Ed Davey. Ed Mm Davey's grew quite impressively quickly, but he was starting from a long way behind and never really caught up. Um, And the amount of engagement that Joe Swinson got on Facebook uh, was consistently higher than Ed Davey, which sort of reinforced this picture of her being the front runner and so on. I think, though, from a sort of a qualitative point of view, if you look at Twitter, I think Ed Davey's tweets... You, you can see the arc of the sort of improvement in them. If you compare all the sorts of things he was tweeting at the end of the leadership election with, say, six months ago, you now he's massively upped his Twitter game. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suspect I know who in particular has been influential in that in terms of looking at the style of the tweets, in which case, well done to them. I won't name them in case I'm out to horrendously slander someone else who's really put in <laughs> all the hard work, but you, you could see that there's definitely the influence of one or more people in terms of helping Ed improve, yeah, improve his, his Twitter game. But... I think it, it, it all felt, to me at least, a little bit like okay, quite smart tactics. You know, I think he had the most energetic campaign in some ways. He seemed to be, do the most posted literature. Mm-hmm. Most members seem reporting receiving either the same amount from each candidate or more than more from Ed than from from Joe. Um, but what was the message yeah. that was not just, uh, "Hey, you should like me as well," but you should like me and vote for me and not so the, the question other is, could Ed? won Mm. Uh, and
1: I'm not sure he could uh, whether he thought that or not I don't know but uh, I think it was going to be quite a tall ask Mm. as the eventual result suggested. So I suppose then the question becomes do you if the only way in which you could win is presumably to run quite an aggressive campaign Mm. that undermines your leadership rival in some way is that a campaign he would want to run uh, if that was the only possible way in which he could win which I suspect it, it was because there wasn't otherwise enough definition between them. They've both been coalition ministers. They were both uh, long-standing MPs. They both um, were putting forward the environment as one of the two or three mm. key uh, policy platforms. So it's hard to know where he could have differentiated himself in a way that would have been positive, non-aggressive, and would have actually changed the result. I, I, you know.
0: Well, I think... I think you'll maybe muddling two different factors in Go on, tell me how muddling because it is possible (laughs) to distinguish yourself without being rude about your opponent. And actually, I think this, this is my one... I don't mean rude, but you would have to nonetheless have some form of reason why not to oh, vote absolutely, for but I think Oh, absolutely. And, and this is, in a way, the real skill. That's what I mean by negative. Yeah. You have to give a reason why you shouldn't vote for Joe Swinson. But the real skill in an internal leadership contest, but also I think the skill that we will need to show, say, in a general election, in terms of appealing to Labour voters in a way that gives them a reason to vote Liberal-Democrat, but isn't so trashing the Labour Party that actually that hostility mm-hmm. puts them off, and you've got a similar problem, albeit people are even more sensitive in an internal contest, is nonetheless there were, were some grounds of genuine disagreement between <coughs> Ed Davey and Joe Swinson, which more could have been made of, in particular their attitudes towards um, deals with other parties. Yeah. So for example, I think if I was, had been in Ed Davey's camp and sort of been asked, well okay, how do we distinguish ourselves, The question, and I slightly regret not asking this myself in the interviews I did with both of them, as I think I mentioned briefly previously, the question I would have wanted to make sure they both got asked, because I think they would have given different answers, is what is your attitude towards a member of the Women's Equality Party who Mm -hmm. wants to join the Liberal Democrats? Now, we now have actually, interestingly, (laughs) this dilemma. A real-life example. Because what people, uh, some people may have noticed, but it's worth maybe giving the background to, because not everyone will have necessarily spotted the news, is Sue Black really impressive campaigner. She was central to the saving of Bletchley Park a few years ago. She had been selected as the Women's Equality Party candidate for Mayor of London. She's also recently announced that she's joining the Liberal Democrats, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting situation that we're in because she's not stood down as the WEP candidate for Mayor of London. We obviously have a candidate for Mayor of London in Siobhan Benita. And so there's a question. Now I think how it will probably be resolved is in sort of sensible, amicable discussions, and the fact that the London Mayor contest involves a be it highly inferior form of preferential voting means you can actually say, hey, vote <laughs> for me, and then also vote for this other person as well. But that sort of issue, I think, yeah, I think Ed could have really pushed Joe on and pushed members to think about are you really comfortable with this idea of reaching out to bring other people mm. into the party, even to the extent of somebody who is standing against one of our own candidates becoming a member of our party? Yeah, I'm not, I think and it's... Uh, and that I think would have, I, you I could think have done that in a way that wouldn't have sounded churlish or nasty sure, sure. or anything. it's a point of
1: differentiation. Have, uh, I don't think it's a kind of election-winning difference uh, in, uh, in terms of a leadership election that would have overturned the majority that Joe got, mm. I guess. And that that's my point, that... Uh, You don't get personally rude with them, but you would have to find some form of compelling reason not to vote for them. And whilst that might be a reason why people would feel a bit uncomfortable, perhaps, in voting for Joe Swinson, those who don't take the view that dual membership should be an option... Uh, I don't think it would have been enough on its, it, in itself to, uh, to make the difference in this campaign. Mind you, I can't forgive you, by the way, for making me research this, because you made me read uh, the membership section of the Lib Dem Constitution for the first time by raising this issue. And I was, I was curious, can you actually be a member of the Liberal Democrats and another political party? Are you forbidden from it? And the Constitution, as far as, far as I can read it, is quite permissive on it, because it uses the phrase, membership may be revoked
0: may be revoked yeah, so if you are a member of the, another political there party. There is, the, as ever, with with um, a word like may, there's exactly. a whole load It's of, not will be, it's uh, may. There's a whole load of things. There, there is, though, certainly up until now, it has been considered unthinkable for a Liberal Democrat member to stand against an official Liberal Democrat candidate and not be kicked out of the party. Yeah. Uh, now, you notice I started that with up until now, because one thing that <laughs> struck me, and, and I think this is why, in a way, it's slightly... I found it slightly frustrating. The leadership election didn't really explore this issue because that would have given members the chance to vote and sort of, you know, clearly decide whether, whatever way the membership decision had gone. But, but we are now in this situation of of being in quite unprecedented territory. You know, Mm -hmm. the, the candidate for an election in which we've got a Lib Dem candidate has also decided to join the Lib Dems. Now, I think. A lot of people, quite rightly, will take the attitude, and this is more where my own view is, that you know, yes, we need to be open and welcoming, and in a way, the existence of the Women's Equality Party is in, slight, is in many ways a reproach to our own failures of the past, and therefore you know, we, should be, we should be welcoming in the fact that it's a contest in which there's preferential voting provides much more scope mm-hmm. to be open and welcoming. It would be sure. a lot tougher if, say, the candidate, you know, the selected candidate in a Westminster constituency where we had an incumbent Liberal Democrat MP as say mm-hmm. decide to join us. But, but I think this provides more scope to do that. I am slightly surprised, though, that so far there don't seem to be that many members worried about the fact that we're going to essentially have two Liberal Democrat members running... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, mean, I think it, you're right that uh, it's probably
1: not gained much currency yet, uh, though doubtless it will do in time uh, if it starts
0: to look like there will be two rival Liberal Democrat mm. members. I mean, I think, I mean a just to election. be clear, I, I think what will happen is, you know, is that there will be sensible discussions between you know Sue Black and Siobhan Benita and and, and colleagues, and there will be some happy, sure. there will be some happy sort of compromise agreed, which I presume will mean. Um, Sue Black saying you know vote first preference women's equality mm-hmm. party second preference for uh, for uh, the Liberal Democrats and although that may therefore take a few first preference votes away from Siobhan Benita and that might be crucial to whether or not she gets mm-hmm. into the final round uh, on the other hand I think the broader media benefit yeah. of having another candidate endorsing you in that way I mean it's just it'll be a weird quirk in a for a start, which will generate some media coverage that is about the Liberal Democrats and not about Labour or not about the Tories. So I think that could be quite beneficial, which brings, I think, us on to um, the other slightly interesting thing that's happened in terms of cross-party moves in the last few days, is we're recording this a couple of days before polling Day in Bracken and Radnor, mm-hmm. sorry, Brecken and Radnashire by-election, and... Both Angela Smith and Heidi Allen have been out yep. campaigning for Jane Dodds. So not only did both Plaid and the Greens decide not to stand a candidate and in, to endorse Jane Dodds, the Liberal Democrat candidate, we've also had you know, a couple of former, former MPs of other parties who then went through the sort of Change UK, <laughs> etc., interesting saga, but actually out campaigning. Yep. And, and I think their presence there illustrates something that, tends to get a little bit overlooked in discussions about possible pacts, possible Remain Alliance deals and so on, which is the benefit of that is not just potentially accumulating more votes behind one candidate in a more efficient way for first past the post, but also the way that if you have an agreement like that, the particular candidate who is the chosen one can get more help and more support. Mm -hmm. So in this case, two extra MPs turned up to campaign for Jane Dobbs, who wouldn't have otherwise... But perhaps most importantly is the broader media message that says. Yeah, the signal. I think Stephen Bush made this point well in one of his New Statesman pieces a few weeks ago, which is leave aside you know, how few votes the Green Party or Plaid probably would have got in Bracken and Radnorshire on their own. The very fact that the Greens and Plaid are saying, mm-hmm. look, the Liberal Democrats are not so horribly evil, awful coalition, baby-eating mm-hmm. monsters, that we're happy to stand down for them, that is quite a positive bit of branding yeah. for the Liberal Democrats. Um, so I think we'll see an awful lot more of that uh, in, in future contests, especially if there's a general election this year. And with Joe Swinson as leader yeah. rather than Ed Davey, I think the official sort of party line from, from the top will be to encourage an awful lot more of that cooperation at the grassroots.
1: Yeah. yeah. So uh, uh, I was trying to think about this question of, will, could a Remain Alliance work? And I think you've uh, picked out there the kind of, mm. it sort of depends on what you mean by work. Mm. Uh, will it flip lots of seats In the Liberal Democrat stroke A, another party who is part of that Remain Alliance direction? Probably not, because when you look at uh, the political contests, which are likely to be uh, tight at the next election, and who who knows, but when you look at the seats where it's genuinely a kind of (coughs) three, four party contest where one of those Remain Alliance parties standing down in favour of another will make a difference, there are some, but there are not that many. Around. So
0: will it well, make up? Count- well, I think I think there are probably more than you you're counting on. Because bear in mind, if you look at the 2017 general election mm-hmm. results, which is the obvious starting benchmark. But bear in mind, if you look at that, not only is Liberal-Democrat support up massively, so the worst Liberal-Democrat opinion poll ratings at the moment still show the party double its mm-hmm. level support. Sure. But also the Green Party support is up yeah, as well. Yeah. So actually, when you factor in where they currently sta- where the parties currently stand, I think it's quite likely, and especially the weird politics of a four- or five-party system, a yeah, yeah. party in England, perhaps five-party in Scotland and Wales, uh, it's quite easy to believe there will be a lot of seats that are quite close and in that sort of could situation, be. It could be. three or four percent from the Greens to the Lib Dems in a whole batch of seats is likely to make a can, much bigger I, difference I mean, than it ever would have in if, a previous if general that's election. how
1: it works out, I can certainly mm-hmm. see what's in it for the Lib Dems. I'm, I'm slightly more dubious what I can see for the Green party because in most of those cases we're basically saying Greens stand down in favour of the Dems because there are only a handful of seats around the country where the Greens are ahead of the Liberal Democrats and in a position to win. So that may be how it works out and if so, great. Uh, I I think
0: I I, I would take the exact opposite view. Go on. Which is I think that very imbalance actually makes it easier to make a deal. Um, because, now, <laughs> okay. listeners cannot see that, the interesting facial expression <laughs> Stephen's pulling, because it's a lot easier to make a deal when the different parties to the deal want something different. And if you're both... So this was one of the big strains between the SDP and the Liberals, mm-hmm. was they were both essentially wanting to be big and successful, and therefore both trying to get the same thing out of a seat deal, of as many winnable seats as possible for themselves. What I think is different in, if we have a Brexit-fueled general election this year is for the Liberal Democrats, there will be a real prospect of getting uh, a number of seats that's way above anything the party has ever won before. And so, for the Liberal Democrats, there's a huge volume thing to go for. Mm -hmm. And so, for the Liberal Democrats, the question is, can we do deals that mean we end up with 80, 90, 100, you know, even deep into three figures numbers of seats. For somebody like the Greens, who have only ever had at most one seat, the idea of doing a deal in which you might get four or five seats, that looks massively attractive to the Greens. Now, if the Lib Dems were also in a position where we were thinking, well, are we going to get 20 seats or are we going to get 30 seats? The idea of the, you know, two or three yeah. seats being seated to the Greens feels much more of a sacrifice. When the Lib Dems can legitimately, or be optimistically, have an eye on a much bigger prize, I think there's a lot more scope to be generous. So it, it was interesting that the words that Jay Swinson used um, a couple of days ago where she, she was asked about, you know, how might a deal like this work? She said, in the vast majority of places, it's going to be the Liberal Democrats are the strongest party of remain but that won't universally be the case so she was okay. clearly hinting at the idea that yeah okay a remain alliance might mean it's the liberal democrat pick in maybe 90 percent of seats somebody else in 10 percent of seats i just yeah. use those numbers okay as figures of speech uh, and, and and everyone can be happy with that the caveat of course is scotland sure. i think almost certainly any arrangements like this will be england and wales only because in scotland you've got this additional dividing line yeah. around independence yeah
1: Uh, I take that on board. Uh, It's an interesting argument that slightly goes against the argument that that then would have been a major difference between Ed Davey and Joe Swinston. Because actually, what you're suggesting is Joe Swinston's strategy isn't actually going to be that different perhaps than the one Ed Davey might have adopted as well. Because if in reality Lib Dems are going to be seeding only, you know, (laughs) Bristol, uh, seats in Bristol and Brighton and, uh, you know, a couple of other places where the Greens are strong, then I think. Lib Dem members would be very relaxed about that level of cooperation. It becomes more of an issue, I guess, if you're talking about standing down in lots and lots of seats. Possibly, also. So, so the Joe Swinson strategy doesn't sta- sound perfectly reasonable uh, from a Lib Dem point of view, whether it does to the Greens, mm. I suppose, relies on uh, them seeing the logic of what you're saying uh, and feeling that it's in their longer-term interests. But it doesn't strike me as a, a great differentiator between Joe Swinson and Ned Davey.
0: Yeah, possibly it would have ended up being not so different. I think though there is a difference in um, the degree to which you're enthusiastic about having as wide a set of deals as possible. Because I think, as you've rightly highlighted, Ed Davies' approach was very much of, well, there might be a few individual constituencies, but nothing Mm -hmm. beyond that. I think a broader arrangement in which, for example, Greens and Plaid and others, Women's Equality Party, perhaps the Renew Party, etc., stand down in very large numbers of seats in return for Liberal Democrats standing down in a relatively small number of seats, that does overall require, mm-hmm. require an agreement on a much bigger, almost sort of national canvas,
1: so in a might, way that Jay yeah. Swinson
0: seems to want to do, and Ed Davey seems to be, seem, you know, seem to be pitching to be quite yeah. reluctant to get into that.
1: Yeah, so. Okay. <clears throat> It may be. Mm. If that pans out uh, from a Lib Dem point of view, I can see then that that could help in a Mm. a few seats. I mean, it's interesting. Are you talking about uh, the number of Lib Dem seats that might be in contention or seats that the Mm. Lib Dems might uh, try and fight seriously at the next election? Now, uh, what is that number that you're thinking of? Because, uh, on my understanding, it's kind of sort of 80 ish, would be the number of Lib Dem seats that realistically are in contention.
0: Well, it depends what you mean by realistically, because, but, because well, the, the big unknown... I mean, well, there are, there are two big unknowns, in a way. There is the Conservative-Brexit party dispute, and yeah. there is the Liberal-Democrat-Labour dispute. Sure. Now, within that, it, there's also, and this is ma- massively for the Liberal Democrats' benefit at the moment, quite a, quite a lot of Conservative remainers switching from Conservatives yeah. to Lib Dems, in a way. The Conservative party hasn't really seemed very bothered about. Thank you very much, Conservative party. But the two, I think, really big unknowns are... One is... How, how is Labour going to do at uh, trying to hold on to remain voters in a, if there's a general yeah. election this year that is primarily about Brexit? The other is to what extent is, are the Conservatives going to be able to cannibalise the Brexit Party's vote in a way that we've sure. seen a few initial signs that Boris Johnson might be able to do that a bit, uh, but certainly the Brexit Party hasn't completely collapsed. In no, the it's still 15%. It, exactly. and, yeah. and so if you have that sort of four-way fight... Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the number of seats in which Liberal Democrats are within a plausible, plausible reach of winning, is is you know deep into three figures. Um, on the other hand, in the past, I'm, I'm always, my skeptical face yeah, again. This it, is it, it, it's always been the case, or nearly always rather been the case that as we get nearer to general election polling day, politi- you know the, yeah, the yeah. campaigns polarise more into two parties. But to keep your sceptical face at bay for just a, a moment longer, what happens if that two-party polarisation, though, is, say, Conservative and Liberal Democrat? You know, it, yeah. if, if, if it polarises in the way that in the past has benefited Labour and disadvantaged the Liberal Democrats, it, that might happen again, yeah. but it's no guarantee that Labour will be the beneficiary rather yeah. than the victim And it's interesting because, uh,
1: I mean, I mentioned the 80-ish seats, that mm. is the figure I've seen quoted mm. as the most likely number of serious Lib Dem. Uh, uh, fights at the next election, and uh, of those, uh, all but three um, were our Conservative or SNP, mm. um, or I guess one applied, yeah. uh, held seats. So it's uh, Labour, not in a sense, the enemy, uh, in terms of the Lib Dem contests at the next election, because it's only Leeds North West, Sheffield Hallam, and I guess if Chucker, uh, sorry, Chucker Amuna. Um, we can't just rely on people knowing that Chuka, uh, is, uh is the former Labour turn Lib Dem MP, can we? Uh, Chucker Munna... Uh, that was remarkably if fights, generous of you not um, to mention any part, other party labels <laughs> in that sentence. You'd all be quite I have, the, you quite like listing the... written independent group for change out of history there. Uh, so there's only those three seats that were t- won by Labour yes. at the last election. So the vast majority of seats that the Lib Dems are likely to be contesting seriously... Who knows what will happen in the next few months, of course, but the, as it currently stands, the seats which, where the party feels it has a realistic chance of winning are almost all uh, Conservative and a handful of SNP uh, and Applied uh, seat as well. So that's, and I think that has interesting connotations then for how the
0: party's strategy shapes for the future as well, doesn't it? Yes, if that were true. Uh, go on, tell me um, how it's not so true. I, I, the the, the contrary position is to have a look at, for example, the European election results. Mm-hmm. And look at just how well the Lib Dems did into eating into the Labour vote in heavily Remain, particularly urban, uh, mm-hmm. Remain areas. And if you if you if we were to see anything like that sort of result in a general election, that would actually see the Liberal Democrats gaining quite a lot of seats from Labour. So places like Cambridge, for example. Cambridge, lots of places in London, yeah. and so um, yeah. as well. Um, and in particular, the reason I think a large part of the Liberal Democrat battle is Liberal Democrat versus Labour. Is it will be to be who is who is the home for the remain, yeah. for remain leaning voters, especially in a general election, which if it happens this year, will be predominantly about remain. So, th- so there will be a real tussle between Liberal Democrats and Labour, and if the Liberal Democrats come out on top in that tussle mm-hmm. in a way that the party did in the European elections, that then also it, what goes with that is a whole load of Labour seats looking there's very There's a question.
1: Uh, there's a question then about we've mentioned general hmm. election and obviously um, the fact that. Boris Johnson has taken over as Prime Minister, has raised the uh, likelihood, it seems, of there being a contest this year Mm. uh, if he is genuinely serious about attempting to take uh, the UK out of Europe on a no-deal basis. I suppose my my question is around... um, uh, At the moment, it feels like the Lib Dems are benefiting from the ambiguity of the political situation, Mm. the fact that Brexit isn't decided means that there is still a live tussle between the forces of yeah. Remain and Leave. Uh, now that may still mm. pertain at the next general election, uh, in particular if it's as a result of Boris Johnson government being brought down in a vote of no confidence, mm. triggering in a general election in some way, with Brexit as yet unresolved. Mm. I guess those are the, that's the ideal scenario, mm. at least from a Lib Dem point of view, because it means that A, Brexit hasn't happened, and B, it's probably the ideal situation in which the Lib Dems would hope to fight a general mm. election. However, that's only one of three um, possible outcomes, the other being that... I'm impressed if you can boil British politics down Uh, to only three possible outcomes. But uh, (laughs) this is where where Theresa May was right Mm. all along, in that there are only three Mm. options. There is uh, her deal, or Mm. a deal that's very like it, uh, perhaps with uh, some tweaks, but there is her deal. There is uh, no deal, uh, and there is no Brexit. Uh, and those are, the, those are essentially the only three choices. There are variants within each, but those are the only three choices. Now, I can see, as I say, how Lib Dems do really well on the basis of Brexit being unresolved. Mm. Uh, but it's only three or four months ago that the party was 8% in the polls mm. and Vince Cable's leadership was still being you know, mm. written off as a pretty much an exercise failure. That's all been turned round as a result of the European elections having taken place and the Lib Dems come mm. second, uh, Vince Cable mm. going out in yep. a, a wave of glory. But... It just shows also how volatile the political situation is. And if we get to a point in 31st of October where Brexit is resolved in one way or another, either by no deal or some yeah. form of deal, uh, even if it takes a few weeks past 31st of October in the end, that resolves the ambiguity of the situation. I think there is... It's something that Lib Dems need to be giving serious thought to as to, OK, what next?
0: I think, I mean, there's definitely a risk there, as you say. The On, on the flip side, I would say two things. One is... Brexit's not going to be resolved, even if, yeah, yeah even if
1: take my resolved as a, a yeah. as a kind of shorthand it, it's for unless we will it's have left be, the
0: European Union. Yeah, it's uh, it, it'll be an interim, as it were, situation. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I've used the example before of the North America Free Trade Agreement, yeah. political issue in the early '90s in U.S. politics, political issue in the last U.S. presidential election. If, if you think in the UK for how long uh, the Iraq War has featured mm-hmm. in people's. Know, polit- influencing people's political views and preferences or the, the winter of discontent and so on. So Brexit won't be over by Christmas. Yep. Sorry to break that to you. No. Um, the other element, though, is let's not forget that the Liberal, Democrat, yeah, the Liberal Democrats did used to exist and did used to be, you know, <laughs> at, at times a growing and successful political party prior to all of this. You mean there was a time before Brexit? There was a time before Brexit. <laughs> Can't believe that. Um, and so without wanting to make this point sound too glib, you could almost say that what Brexit may have done politically for the Liberal Democrats is cancel out coalition and yeah. therefore given the Lib Dems the potential to go back to how things used to be it, and, and you can imagine yeah. it's quite plausible that at some point in 50 years time someone's writing history of the Liberal Democrats and they're looking at the early sort of 21st century that the broad picture will be some years of massively plummeting popularity then cancelled out by Brexit and then things were back to how they were yeah. sort of the sort of pre two thousand and ten era, and in that situation, we'll have an unpopular conservative government, badly run, uh, public services massively under strain, a Labour Party with a not very effective leader, and some huge problems of its own. Let's not forget, you know, that the Labour Party is actually under official investigation for institutional racism in terms of the uh, anti-Semitism investigation the ECHR is carrying out. You know, that they were that that in some ways does feel a bit like the politics yeah. of 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 the the late eighties early nineties.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, and you know, the Liberal
0: Democrats had some bad election results in that period, but then went on to have some really good
1: ones. Yeah, and obviously, the, you know, the fate of Jeremy Corbyn is another uh, issue there as to how things will will look like. I just think that it's, uh, I, I guess, what I'm trying to um, inject a note of caution into is the sense that uh, Brexit is dominating our discourse now, and you're right, of course, that it will continue uh, for years and years to come. But the Remain Leave fight. Uh, might Mm. be over in terms of its potency Mm. as an electoral asset in that once uh, Article 50 has run Mm -hmm. its course and uh, membership of the European Union is no longer at stake, uh, which is quite plausibly Mm. the case post 31st Mm -hmm. of October, that does change the dynamics again. Now all then that you say about the fact that the Liberal Democrats exist outside of Brexit and Labour has huge problems and- uh, They'll be the campaign to rejoin the European Union. And the Conservative Party is likely to remain uh, divided and riven and if certainly it's on a no deal basis, the chances of uh, the economic climate being benign are very much Mm. reduced. All those things come into play. Mm. It's just that I think that sometimes uh, we've kind of flipped from that um, depressive state of the Liberal Democrats Mm. aren't going anywhere quickly through to, uh, and now we can plot our route to number 10 with no intervening period whatsoever. And it's a question of uh, trying to make sure that the party's got a sustainable footing that doesn't just rely on the fact that politics is completely bonkers at the moment uh, and that as a result the Lib Dems are the only showing town because that state is current Uh, it isn't necessarily something that's going to
0: Oh, absolutely. And and, and I guess a good example of warning from the political past for the Democrats in that respect is the political boost the party under Charles Kennedy got out of the Iraq war. Obviously, there are many much more substantial issues around the Iraq war but just from a very narrow political perspective yeah. it gave the party a big political boost that didn't translate into any longer term organizational boost for the party so yeah. there wasn't a boost in party membership there wasn't a boost in the strength of the party's local government base there wasn't really a boost in the party's finances now some of that I think we're getting right this time yeah. this time we are converting that sort of boost in popularity on a major issue into now record high membership. It is being translated a bit into gains, but there's an awful lot of work. I think you're right. absolutely right. More for the party to do to put in place place the right sort of sustainable, long term growth for the party. And in particular, in that sense, to be thinking not just about the next Westminster general election, but the other elections that come. Sure. Because however many general elections and referendums we'll have in the next twelve months, and I guess yeah, quite likely to be more than zero, may even be more than <laughs> one. Um, we do know that, for example, there'll be a massive round of local elections next May. Not quite as big as this year's, but still a very mm-hmm. big, a very substantial round. And one which, in all of the other political uncertainty, is likely to be a bit like this May. A huge opportunity for the Liberal Democrats to give... Not only to take power at local level and all the good things that come from that, but also to be able to help change or reinforce what the national political conversation is as well. And I think one of the things we traditionally are very weak on as a party... Is managing to think beyond the next Westminster general election. And in sure. that sense, I think you're absolutely right, albeit I'm probably coming at that a bit more from an organisational perspective, while I suspect you're coming at it more from a policy perspective. <laughs> but that will give us plenty more to discuss in future episodes yeah, okay. for this summer.
1: Isn't, it, isn't Brexit great from a podcast point of view? It's yeah. great content. <laughs>
0: And people who listen to our initial pilot episodes will think, what happened to that promise never to talk about Brexit? I know. I won. You won. won. You won, Stephen. (laughs) Damn you. Damn you. Anyway, with that, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. You can find Nevermind the Bar Chart on social media. We have a Facebook page and a Twitter account at Bar Chart Podcast. Please do follow us. Please do send us your questions or feedback on the shows through those social media accounts. And of course, if you like listening to this, please let other people you know know about the existence of this show. So thank you very much.